Good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see you. Thank you for the uh, for the Tim Tams. I'll put them to good use. And uh, if you sit next to me at discussion time, I might share some with you. No, I'll share some with you anyway. Um, yeah, welcome to the exchange. As you know, we've been going through a, a series from the book of Matthew covering the five discourses um, of Jesus. And uh, today we're going to be covering the third discourse. And it has to do with the different parables that are shared in the book of Matthew. And we'll be uh, mainly uh, staying around in uh, Matthew chapter 13. And so if you have your Bibles or your phones um, and you've got an app there, I'll invite you to join me in Matthew chapter 13. And we will um, begin our message there. I'm just going to invite you to have one more word of prayer with me as we start this afternoon. Father God, as we go through this discourse that has to do with the kingdom of God, I just want to pray that you would teach us of what it means to be partakers of your kingdom, what it means to understand the nature and the principles by how you operate your kingdom, and um, I pray that it would help us to be ready to experience that kingdom even today. And so I just pray that you would bless this time. And uh, give me clarity of thought as I um, try to explain something that is inherently mysterious. And so I just want to pray this in your name. Amen. So in the in Matthew chapter 13 and throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus repeats this phrase called, or he repeats this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. And he's trying to teach um, the Israelites or the Jews of that time what heaven is supposed to be like. Now that phrase has historic has a historical background and in the bible if you look at daniel chapter 2 let's see if i can flip this on if you look at daniel chapter 2 and we won't go there today um well i'll have a slide i'll have a, a verse here for you but basically there's this prophecy in daniel chapter 2 about different world empires or different world kingdoms and generally we look at this uh, story in Dan chapter 2 and say, ah, there's prophecy in the Bible and we can prove that the Bible is true because history follows prophecy kind of like a blueprint. But today I want to use this um, chapter slightly different in the way that the Hebrews would have understood Daniel chapter 2. For them, they were receiving prophecies from God through a prophet named Daniel and he was basically saying, right now there's an empire that is holding you captive. And as history goes around, there are going to be different world empires that come and conquer one another. But you need to worry. Uh, you don't need to worry. God is preparing a different kingdom that he is going to be the king over. And he invites you as his people to be partakers of that kingdom. And so Daniel chapter 2 talks about these different world kingdoms. And in Daniel chapter 2 verse 44, uh, this prophecy states... In the days of those kings, that's these kings right here, whether it's Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, or Rome. And if you're not familiar with this, please ask Jenhar or myself, and we are happy to go through this prophecy with you sometime. So in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, it says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. So for the Hebrews, they would have listened to this prophecy and thought, right now we are under the rule of Babylon or whatever world empire is in power at the time. And they would cling to this promise and say, one day God is going to set up a different kingdom and it's going to last forever. One day we're going to experience peace. One day we're going to experience prosperity and we can live a good life without having the fear of being captive of anybody. And so this was a promise that all of Israel was looking forward to 
for centuries. Now here comes Jesus. He enters on the scene and he's performing miracles. He's multiplying food. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. And people are looking at Jesus thinking, this guy is a miracle worker. And then he drops this line, the kingdom of heaven is like. And automatically they think of Daniel chapter 2 and they think, the kingdom of heaven is now. And so here in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus uses, uses this line, but here's the trick. He's not preparing, or he's not trying to set up a physical kingdom at that moment in time. He's just trying to teach the principles of that kingdom so that when it happens, the people would be ready. It's like the equivalent of permanent residency, preparing people to become citizens, except for Jesus allows all the benefits to be experienced right then and there, which is nice about Jesus' kingdom. But So he's preparing his people for citizenship, and so he uses teaching to prepare people for heaven, if that makes sense. And so Matthew chapter 13, Jesus uses um, particular parables to teach people about the kingdom of heaven. Now, usually when we think of parables, we kind of think of different metaphors that clarify spiritual truth. And as we understand the parable, we will understand that truth better. But there's this really interesting passage in Matthew chapter 13, and I'll invite you to go there. It's Matthew chapter 13. Well, I've got the slide here. Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 to 15. And basically, as Jesus is teaching in parables, they're very mysterious teachings. Jesus is speaking to a large multitude of people. He drops this parable and he doesn't explain it. And so what happens is his disciples come to him privately and they ask Jesus this question in verse 10. Why do you speak to them in parables? Because it doesn't make sense. Jesus responds, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus wants to teach uh, the people these truths that will prepare them for eternity. But the reality is, the nature of that truth, it's shrouded in mystery. And so the disciples just want to know what is going on. So I want to present this second idea of what it means when Jesus teaches in parables. And he's purposefully being confusing. There's this quote here, and I'll just read it for you. It says, We are so used to thinking of parables as helpful illustrative stories that we find it hard to grasp the message of this chapter that parables are not always designed to explain. To some, they may convey it. They may convey enlightenment, but for others, they may only deepen confusion. The difference lies in the hearer's ability to rise to the challenge. Far from giving explanations, parables themselves need to be explained. And uh, three are given in Matthew chapter 13, uh, detailed explanation to this chapter. And so, basically... Jesus gives this mysterious saying, and he wants his disciples to come and ask him. And so in Matthew chapter 13, he gives three mysterious uh, parables. We're only going to cover one. And each time the disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, this doesn't make sense. And basically, the lesson that Matthew is trying to communicate to us is, it is for the person who is searching for truth that they find what it means to understand the kingdom of heaven. In other words, some truth is not supposed to be meant for everybody. And that's kind of contrary, because we usually think of Jesus as, well, he's trying to save everybody. But the reality of this message is, different, res- different people respond to truth differently. Some people embrace it and are joyful and love it. Other people understand it, and it frustrates them, and they begin to attack that very truth. 
And so Jesus designs parables to be mysterious, to only be found by the genuine seeker. And what we're going to find is in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus shares this famous parable, and it's uh, designed to communicate um, the heart condition of different people as they search for God. And hopefully, as we search for God, we can learn some valuable lessons from this. Notice how the passage finishes here. Uh, In verse 15, Jesus basically explains that and says, The heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. And Jesus is saying, some people stubbornly refuse to accept truth, but if they chose to practice humility, I would heal them. But some people choose not to, so I speak in mystery. In the very next passage, Jesus says, But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. Now, if you're in Matthew chapter 13, what I'm going to do is I'm going to narrate this first parable for the sake of time. Matthew chapter 13, and I believe it starts in verse 3. Matthew chapter 13 verse 3, and we're going to be learning about the parable of the sower. And I didn't really do this before, but I just want to welcome our other online viewers. Uh, We usually have one or two people that are not able to make it to church, and uh, they join us over live feed. So I just welcome, glad you can join us, and I think we even have some people interstate, and so we want to make you feel welcome. So Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 3, and here's the parable. It's the parable of the sower, which reveals um, the different heart conditions that individuals have. So The parable begins by Jesus introducing that there is this sower. He has seed, and he spreads it through different kinds of ground. The first ground is considered uh, the wayside. It's the ground that's been walked upon. It's kind of like the sidewalk. And what takes place is the seed gets sown on that ground, and the ground is so hard that the seed doesn't really penetrate the ground. And what takes place is birds come and eat the seed, and then the, the birds take the seed, and then they fly away. The second ground is a ground that's called the stony ground. This ground uh, characterizes uh, ground that's quite shallow. It's got stones in it. The seed falls into the ground and actually sprouts initially. But because the ground isn't very deep, uh, the soil is still a bit hard under the uh, topsoil, the seed gets exposed to the sun, and then it withers and dies. The third ground is characterizes the thorny ground, and basically what takes place is the ground is good ground. The seed falls into the ground, sprouts, but at the same time there are thorns in that very same ground, and they grow together, and what takes place is the thorns choke out the seed. Then there's the good ground, and the Bible says that this good ground uh, produces fruit. Uh, sometimes it produces 30-fold of what has been sowed, sometimes 60, and sometimes 100-fold. And so this is kind of uh, the heart condition that Jesus is saying, this is the kind of ground that we should have. Now what's interesting is, uh, like I mentioned before, Jesus shares this parable and doesn't say anything. He doesn't share what it means, and he just kind of walks away. And so it forces the disciples to chase after Jesus, and they say, Jesus, what does this mean? And here's the explanation that he gives. Um, in John chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus highlights this idea of what it means to have a heart that is open to producing fruit. In the parable, 
Jesus is trying to communicate the importance of having a good ground and the importance of bearing fruit. And to understand the importance of this parable, we must first understand what fruit means in the New Testament and especially in the Gospels. Now, there are different passages that talk about fruit. Uh, I think of passages like Galatians chapter 5 where it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And you can almost say fruits are kind of like good works. It's like doing the right thing, then you're producing good uh, fruit. Uh, another person would say, oh, obedience is kind of a fruit. Uh, God asks you to do something, you follow it, and that is fruit. But in John, Jesus kind of reveals this different element to fruit, because I think it can be specific, it can also be very broad. And so I kind of want to look at fruit bearing from a broad perspective. In John chapter 15, Jesus shares another parable about fruit bearing. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches, connect to me and you will bear fruit. And here's what he says about fruit. He says, my father is glorified in this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So Jesus says, fruit brings glory to God. Fruit is about acknowledging God in his holiness, in his power, in his righteousness, in his existence. In all that he is, fruit is supposed to bring attention and glory to God. And so, one could say fruit is good works, and that's true. You can, be, you, you can be involved in a charity, you can give of your time, you can give of your finances, but it won't necessarily bring attention to God. Right? There are plenty of secular philanthropo- uh, philanthropic um, entities that do a lot of good in the world, but yet it doesn't necessarily bring, bring glory to God. And so fruit is specifically bringing attention to God so that one experiences the glory of God and says, I recognize that and I submit to it. So Jesus says, if you bear fruit, you prove to be my disciples. In other words, when true fruit is born, then a true knowledge of God is also understood and experienced. Does that make sense? Okay, so when Jesus says there's this good ground, it produces fruit, Jesus is saying this is the way that one, people experience me, how you experience me, and how I am glorified. And so this is kind of what we're going to talk about today. So back to Matthew chapter 13, starting from verse 3. Or excuse me, we went to verse 3. Moving on to verse 17. Uh, Moving on to verse 18. Jesus then explains this parable. And I'm just going to read through portions of this together with you. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 13, verse 18. It says, You then listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. And so... Notice Jesus begins to explain. The seed is the, help me out, what's the seed? The word of God. And when he talks about the ground, he's talking about a heart condition. And so he says, the first ground that's uh, considered the wayside, it's very hard, it's packed down. In other words, the seed gets sown, it doesn't give root because it can't. And Jesus says, this heart condition is 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 of someone who does not understand. And the result of it is that birds or the enemy or Satan comes and takes the seed and flies away. Now, there are two problems that that come to my mind as I think about uh, this parable. The first problem is this. The ground does not have the seed. 
The ground does not receive the word of God. The ground does not understand the word of God. The second problem is the bird now has possession of the seed. The bird now has possession of the seed. This is what I mean by this. The application is whenever we come in contact with a truth or an idea or even an error and we choose not to give it genuine thought, we choose not to try and understand it, we choose not to try and apply it and figure out what is this about and we just reject it without thought, oftentimes what happens is that idea is taken away and when we are challenged with it later on, uh, the idea is that if we do not understand it, it can come back and bite us, if that, if that makes sense. It's written a lot more fancy right here, but I'm just going to try and communicate it the best way that I can as it comes to my mind. But I just want to say that as Christians, sometimes there's truth that we are faced with that we don't give genuine thought or genuine fairness to. And not just that which is right, but even that which we may not think is right. And that idea of the bird taking that seed away is that the bird has possession of truth or error and now has influence if we don't know what to do with that truth or error. Let me try and uh, explain in a better way. There are some truths that we hold as foundational to Christianity. One of those truths is the idea of creation. We kind of like, that is what makes us Christian. We believe in creation and that God created the world in six literal days and rested the seventh day. And basically, that makes us unique. And in the face of secularism, in the face of evolution, we kind of see that as a direct attack to Christianity and the foundation of our faith. And so what happens is, sometimes we don't give thoughtful attention, and, uh, thoughtful attention and thoughtful care to the idea of creation or to the idea of evolution. And as a result, as we try to stand up for what we believe in, our own faith gets shaken because we haven't actually considered some things. I'll give an example, and I'll share a true story of what I went through. Throughout, um, throughout my experience at university and throughout my experience of thinking about this idea of where did we come from? How do we exist now? Like that idea of, you know, matter can't be created or destroyed, and yet here we are, we exist. Like, how do I explain that? And how do I defend the idea that I believe in anyway? And I remember someone said something like this, evolution is based off of the idea of survival of the fittest. In other words, uh, life is prolonged through death, and that process has to take place. And... Um, Basically, survival of the fittest takes place, and then the next line of species can then continue on, and then life is prolonged through that process of death and death and destruction. And so, basically, as a Christian, I hear this idea that God is loving, God is a creator, He is life-promoting, He doesn't promote survival of the fittest, right? God can create something from nothing, and so those two ideas are directly opposed, and as Christians, we listen to that theologically and we listened to that ideology, and for me, I thought, yeah, that makes sense. God doesn't believe in survival of the fittest. It's, it is about death and destruction. And then I had Micah. And what took place is I had to take these birthing classes, right? And basically, um, they're kind of explaining how like, conception takes place and how you know, you've got the two ovaries and apparently um, you produce between 15 to 20 eggs every single month and basically uh, the body chooses the healthiest eggs and whichever ovary has a healthier egg, it bloop, plops it into the fallopian tube and then it waits for the swimmer, right? And so it's almost completely random. And then what takes place is the swimmer's come to the egg and it's got to those swimmers have to decide right or left right or left 
And the ones that choose the wrong way, well, well, they don't make it. And the ones that choose the right way, well, the strongest swimmer gets to survive, right? And I'm, I'm like listening to this, I'm like, how many swimmers are there? It's like 100 million swimmers every single time something like that takes place. And so it's kind of like, that is an incredible odd. So I look at Micah and I think, you are the strongest swimmer. Like, congratulations. And I listened to this and I just thought, okay, one swimmer made it, but let's just say 99 million, no, hold on. Yeah, 99 million, uh, other swimmers didn't make it. And I just thought, well, that sounds an awful like survival of the fittest. Like, I, I don't know how else to explain that. And I'm talking to Jin Han, and I'm like having an existential crisis as we're driving in the car together. And I was like, you know, like, I've almost thought the wrong thing. Like, I can't imagine what some scientists think when, when they listen to some of the stuff that we say as, as creationists. And they're kind of like, I don't know if that guy knows what they're talking about, you know? And, and I'm not saying, therefore, I believe in macroevolution and I don't believe... I'm just saying, as, as Christians, we need to be thoughtful in what we think and how we handle truth. Because the reality is, we say, you know what, I don't believe that, I believe this. But if we actually haven't given thoughtful care and attention to that idea, that can come back and bite us. If somebody says, do you know you're actually wrong about that? Well, what happens to the foundation of my faith? See, what's happened is the bird now has control of the seed. And what does the bird do? Well, it ruins the seed. That's what the bird does. And so here in this first ground, Jesus is saying, there are some people who experience an idea or a truth. They choose not to think about it. They choose not to give it honest, thoughtful attention. And then they just don't think at all. And later on, the bird comes, and that's when the problem arises. And so that first ground is a challenge to us as Christians to give ideas genuine, thoughtful, prayerful consideration. Okay. Now, in case anybody online who ever sees this is like, is that pastor preaching heresy? I believe in creation. I believe in God. I'm just saying, let's be thoughtful people. Okay, so moving on. That's the first ground. We look at the second ground. Um, Reading on. Verse 20. It says, The one sown on rocky ground... This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but is short-lived when pressure or persecution comes because of the word. Immediately he stumbles. Now notice the stony ground. The recipient of the word uh, with the individual who has the heart of the stony ground receives it with joy. This isn't somebody who is an antagonistic individual who doesn't care about God, who doesn't care about the Bible. This individual is someone who is excited about learning about God. And the challenge is, is that the ground or the root is not, or cannot go deep enough because the ground isn't broken up. There's good topsoil, but not good foundational soil, if that makes sense. I'm not a farmer, you can tell. But um, stuff on top is good, stuff down low, not so good. Uh, There are lots of rocks and things like that in there. And what takes place is, Jesus says, the, the seed goes into the ground and it sprouts. And the stuff on top of the soil is good, but the stuff below the soil is not good. And here's the application of the spiritualization of this principle. Sometimes it's Christians or just as people who are seeking or learning about God, 
it's easy to hear about the amazing things about Scripture, to be excited about it, and at the same time, not let that idea take root in our hearts. And so we can be excited, but then it's easy to focus on the externals of Christianity as opposed to focusing on the internals of Christianity. In other words, we, it's easy to become more concerned about what people see on the outside as opposed to what people don't see on the inside. And so this parable is saying, when the seed is sown, it's important for that seed to take root in the heart, for that soil to feed that seed, to allow that seed to grow as opposed to not being able to receive nutrients, as opposed to not receiving water, as opposed to not being able to hold on to the ground. And what takes place is persecution, difficulty, trial comes, and it challenges that faith that we're excited about. And basically, Jesus says, that seed eventually withers away. And so, the message that Jesus is challenging us with is he's saying, it's important to make, uh, to prepare your heart to receive truth. As you receive it, if you're excited about it, learn to feed that excitement. Feed the Word of God. Let the Word of God feed you. Roots are good for two reasons. One, roots allow something to grow. But roots also hold soil together so that if wind blows, if rain comes, oftentimes erosion takes place. But if a seed has roots, it can keep that soil together. Has there ever been a time in your life where you wanted security, you wanted confidence, you wanted stability? Well, Jesus is saying, let the word of God be planted in your heart. As the roots go down, feed the Word of God. It's one thing to hear a sermon and think, oh, that was a cool idea. It's something completely different to go home, to study the passage, to think about it, to kind of meditate and think, how many different ways can I apply this principle into my life? How do I feed the Word of God so that it actually grows as opposed to just hearing it and then letting it die after a little while? It's saying when you hear a truth that resonates with your heart, feed it, feed it. Notice the third ground. Moving on to verse 22. It says, Now the one sown among the thorns, this is one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the seduction of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. That word deception in in the Greek has two ideas connected to it. Um, The first idea is... um, pleasure the second idea is deception and i suppose the reason why uh the pleasures of the world are deceptive are because they look really attractive and so jesus highlights one fraudulent pleasure and on the other hand notice it says the worries of the world choke the seed so fraudulent pleasure and fear and so it's easy for an individual to think about the challenges from the week ahead. It's easy for an individual to think about, what can I possibly have? And I remember growing up, um, I really wanted like a, a three-wheeler, like a big wheel. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that, but it's like um, in the U.S. they used to have these plastic big wheels, and um, um, they had these discs that covered the spokes, and it just kind of looked really cool, and it had like kind of the tassels on the side with the flame stickers on the side of the three-wheeler. And I thought, man, if I just... If I just had one of those, my life would be complete. My life would be complete. I got a little bit older, and um, 
then I really wanted a bicycle. And I thought, man, if I could just have a bicycle, like a huffy bicycle, my, my life would be complete. I got a little bit older, I got my license, and I thought, man, if I could just have a car, I just, my life would be complete. And then I thought, man, if I just, if I just have a wife or a girlfriend, man, my life would be a complete. And here I am, like, I've got the car, I've got the bicycle, I've got, like, I'm married now, and now it's like, what else can I get? I need a house, I need a spaceship, I need, you know, like, it just, it, it never ends. And Jesus is saying, there's this decept, there's this fraudulent, attractive deception that the world asks us to invest our time, our energies, our attentions to. And he's saying, on one hand, be aware of this because it will take your time. It'll take space in your life. And on the other hand, there is also worry and fear. Oh no, what happens if I never get that bicycle? Oh no, what happens if I never get that girlfriend? Oh no, what happens if I never get that house? And Jinnah and I have this ongoing conversation of like, should we even try and buy a house or should we just, you know, should we donate all of our money away? Well, she says, should we donate all of our money away? And then I say, no. <laughs> and, and there's kind of like this fear and this worry of what happens if I'm never able to realize my dreams? And there are these two things that basically take root, that can take root in our lives. Now, here's the unique thing about this ground. The seed goes into the ground and the ground is actually good it does take root. It does have roots. It does grow. It is fed. The problem is it has divided attention from the person who has the heart. It gives attention to the thorns. It gives attention to the word of God. And the challenge is, which one will we feed? Do we feed the thorns or do we feed the seed? And so Jesus says, be aware of the thorns. Be aware of the thorns. Because the reality is, you cannot give attention to both things. One will choke the other. It's like trying to have two wives or two husbands that live in the same house. It's like, well, I love you both the same. One is going to choke the other one. So basically there is this universal principle of you can only give thoughtful, your heart thoughtful attention to one thing at a time. And Jesus' suggestion is give thoughtful attention to the seed. Here's the fourth ground. It's the good ground. Now, not a lot of description is given to this good ground. I'll read the verse. Uh, it's verse 23. It says, But the one sown on the good ground, this is one who hears and understands the word, who does bear fruit and yields some hundred, some sixty, and some thirty times what is sown. This good ground is ground that is open. It seeks to understand. It seeks truth. It prepares itself. It doesn't have stones in it. It doesn't have thorns in it. It gives undivided attention, and it produces fruit. Now, the neat thing about this, this uh, field is there's kind of like this hidden promise in this field. Jesus says, listen, you are going to produce 30 times what you sow. If I sow three seeds, Jesus says, you're going to produce 30. If you throw 10 seeds... Some people are going to produce 100. And what he's trying to communicate is, when it's harvest time, you will see a difference in what you sow. There's a quantifiable difference. Now, what's interesting is that he doesn't define what that quantifiable thing is. He just says, trust me, it's good. And I suppose that's why the nature of the kingdom of heaven is shrouded in mystery. Because it isn't just fact, it's about how you respond to that fact. 
And so Jesus here kind of like pokes at us almost and says, try and produce fruit. When it's harvest time, you'll know what it is. You'll know what it is. So here's this good ground. Jesus challenges us. Take time. Prepare your heart. Receive the seed. Water the seed. Nurture the seed. Make space and time for that seed to grow. You will produce fruit. You will produce fruit. There's some things that I wrote down to consider when it comes to farming. And obviously I'm not a farmer, so my my insight into this is actually very limited. But oftentimes when I have tried to apply this parable, there are times where I think, I didn't do it right. I didn't prepare my heart the right way. There are still thorns there. There are still stones there. There are still hard ground there. And what I like about this analogy of farming is that as seasons are kind of cyclical, you always have another chance to try again. You always have another chance to try again. And I think that's the beauty of farming is you just kind of learn as you go. Um, spiritually, like I said, I've got a lemon tree in, in my backyard that Brunwyn gave us, and uh, it's produced one lemon, and we harvested it, thankfully, and I hope your lemon tree grows next year because <laughs> we have brown thumbs, not green ones. Um, but spiritually, when it comes to farming, the nice thing is you can always try again, you can always try again, you can always rehash the soil in your heart and re-sow that seed. That, is, that exists because Jesus exists. That exists because Jesus has sacrificed his life for us. Farming is different from other projects in that you can't force fruit to grow faster. There's a process of growth that takes place, so be patient. I think a lot of times we, want, we plant the seed and we think, okay, I want, to see, I want to see results from this. One day passes and it's kind of like, you know, I've spent quite a bit of time praying today. Like, how come I'm not noticing anything? And there's just something about growth in seeds that it just takes time. You can't rush nature. You can't rush nature. Thirdly, you can't learn everything there is to learn about farming immediately. Give yourself time to learn. and Give your, space, give your time space to learn. And as you experience a little bit of fruit... Um, that really is the motivation to keep trying. And so in your own lives, as you consider this idea of um, your own heart, and as you consider the four grounds, uh, I'd like you to take a thoughtful moment and ask yourself the question, what's the condition of my heart right now? Maybe it's the good ground. Maybe it's the stony ground. Maybe it's the thorny ground. Maybe it's a mixture of the different grounds. And as I kind of consider this, um, yeah, Jinha and I have been kind of talking, and uh, we've had... So we've had internet at our house, and we first started with 50 gigs, and that ran out pretty quickly. And then we moved up to the 100 gigs, and that ran out pretty quickly. And I'm like, I right, forget, let's just do unlimited, because like, we, we need the internet. And time passed by, and I'm like, you know, it's like 1 o'clock in the morning, and I'm like watching YouTube. And after a little while, I was like, man, this is overtaking my life. And, I, and the two of us talked together, and we're like, you know, this is actually hindering not just work, but our marriage life and Micah and, you know, let's, let's kind of take a break from this and step back and how about we, we refocus on things that we really value. And so we talked together and this month on the 10th, the internet is cut out and we have to survive on our mobile data and hopefully we're responsible enough to um, be able to send our work emails from home from our mobile data. And what, what we're saying is as we, basically both of us were impressed, like, you know, we think God wants us to kind of reevaluate where we are in our lives and 
to kind of replow the heart condition. And as we keep sowing seeds, like we want to experience God glorified in our lives, God glorified in the church. And um, yeah, it's just something that we've, we've uh, decided that we want to do. And as you listen to this third discourse, um, yeah, I'd like to invite you as well to consider um, where your heart is and how you want to respond to, uh, to respond to the word of God. And may you experience seed, whether it's 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold. And uh, we really play, pray that uh, you would experience God glorified in your life um, and that, and that uh, miracle of nature actually takes place. And so may God bless you um, as you consider these things.